I went to Chicago and I think we always have a preference for things that are rooted in economic history and economic fundamentals to a fault, even when they kind of don't make sense currently, potentially. That said, there are no two periods in history that are exactly alike. And you can always add a qualifier to them. And I can't think of any time in history that's exactly like this. Um, but what you can do, and I think can be meaningful, is you can look at how um, how correlations or how assets tend to move in tandem during certain periods. And I think that that may be an easier context. The one kind of wrinkle lately is like the Fed is very different than it was decades ago, right? So. Um, that's kind of that's kind of pulling putting a monkey wrench into the whole thing. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world, so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well-diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. Uh, today I'm joined by Elizabeth Burton, who is the Chief Investment Officer of the State of Hawaii Employment Retirement System, a 25 billion public pension plan. Prior to taking on that role, Elizabeth had a diverse uh, background in the investment industry as a trader, as an economic researcher, as a consultant, and as a hedge fund allocator. Elizabeth, it's great to have you on the podcast all the way from sunny Hawaii. Hawaii, how is everything today? Everything's great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. It's a very interesting time to have you on with such a lot going on in market. I did a little bit of an intro on your background there, but maybe to set the scene, can you talk a little bit more about that background and what you've done in the investment world and even prior to that and what has taken you to your current position as CIO in Hawaii? Sure. Uh, so I have a pretty non-traditional background. I've been here at Hawaii um, just over three and a half years. Before then, I was a head of risk for Maryland's um, then, I think, $55 billion plan. I'm sure in COVID, they've um, increased their assets substantially. And I also 
um, was uh, managing director of their quant strategies group, which does include quant strategies, but also includes other um, illiquid type strategies. And then, um, but I had kind of a tra strange trajectory before there, and it's it's a long story, but basically I worked in um, payments, M&A, I worked in consulting, I was an expert witness econometrician for a couple years. Um, I worked in hedge funds for a large South African um, insurance company, and then um, kind of started out in the industry on the mortgage-backed side, um, trading uh, pass-throughs. So been a really long winding way here, but I, uh, I, I think it has made me um, a, a pretty well-rounded CIO at the end of the day. Very good. And obviously it's a, and a very interesting and fascinating role you have managing, you know, $25 billion in assets. In markets we're experiencing at the moment, it, it must be particularly challenging and interesting. We've had a quite an eventful start to the year with, uh, you know, a sharp correction. In, in growth stocks in particular, but but equities and bonds both down on the month of January. And obviously, a lot of people have been saying this is the possibility that we might see going forward, you know, challenges for the 60-40 portfolio. What's your perspective on what we've been seeing in markets to date this year? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I don't know a ton of people who are still, you know, at the 60-40 portfolio allocation, except for maybe smaller um, smaller type plans without an, an investment office. For us, the 60-40, the 60 still exists. The 40 is, looks like something else. Okay. Um, the, you know, I, I agree the markets are kind of in an odd place. Equities look expensive. Um, but when I hear that they look, uh, you know, cheaper relative to the fixed income side, that's not really what we're comparing it to anymore. And I think we also have to keep in mind that, you know, over the course of history, equities have been positive. I, I'm going to get this wrong, but let's call it like 80% of the time. So we can't just be uninvested in those markets, right? Although I would say, I don't think anyone would be surprised if what happened last month continues where we have like these, you know, five to 10% dips in the market. And I think we should all kind of be prepared for that. Um, but my biggest concern um, has been for the last two years that we're going into a sustained inflationary environment and running a public pension um, and making sure that we have the benefits to pay out retirees and that those dollars are meaningful to them is probably my biggest concern. Interesting. And, and I'm glad you touched on that because obviously you're managing a public pension plan. So it's not a, an unconstrained mandate, I guess. You've got to keep an eye on your liabilities as well as the asset side. Could you give us a bit of a, a sense on that of you know how different it is uh, managing this type of portfolio versus a, a, you know, a hypothetical unconstrained portfolio? Sure. Um, and, you know, I'll probably be a little bit biased on my side of the table here, but um, I think in general, um, you know, first of all, we're about 55% funded. We've been, we've improved that funding ratio over the last few years since the equity markets kind of ripped and our private markets portfolio did well, but um, we're still quote unquote underfunded um, and we have a 7% return target. Um, so I think versus other plans that may be fully funded, um, you know, really their cost of capital is essentially um, you know, maybe LIBOR plus, right? So okay. our our cost of capital is seven. We've still got to hit that return hurdle. Um, and it's not as easy as maybe, you know, some other institutions where we're just trying to swing for the fences. The board of um, directors of Hawaii has set out some risk parameters and some, you know, investment policy rules that they kind of want to navigate around. So my job is to try to get seven or better within those types of constraints, which um, 
which can be challenging at the same time, like having, you know, carte blanche, I think could probably also be challenging. So, yeah. um, so I think that's the main difference. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, you touched on how the 7% is challenging and, you know, I've seen those charts before where if you go, go back to say, I don't know, I guess it was 2000 or so, you could get 7% probably from a fixed income portfolio in, in, in US dollar assets. Um, is it is is the seven percent target? You know, is it realistic, or is that not something you even worry about? Is it just that's that's the target you have to hit? So I often feel like a little bit of a hypocrite with this question because while it's very hard to eke out an extra ten basis points of return in any given year, I think it's very hard to say whether hitting six percent or five percent or seven percent is easy, right? Like I just don't mm. have a crystal ball on that. I think it's challenging across the board. I think to your point about their, um, you know, you could just use used to be able to just do this with fixed income. Um, now there are a bunch of other um, asset classes uh, where public pensions are investing in, especially on the private side, which can help um, add to that, you know, that return bogey. So real estate, for a good example, might be something, you know, U.S. value add, for example, going out the next decade or so might be a place we could pivot to where that wasn't as common for plans, you know, 10, 20 years ago, and then obviously private equity. So there are other levers yeah. um, that we can pull that, that weren't available to us and were available to other investors in the past. Okay. Um, you touched on, you know, inflation being a big concern uh, in in your kind of framework. And obviously that's been a big topic in markets um, really for the last, well, you know, for the last number of years, but but certainly the debate has heated up since we've had the uh, uh, COVID pandemic. What's your what's your own base case in terms of the outlook for inflation? Yeah, I mean, I, I have been a little bit of a broken record on this. For the last two years, I really thought we were going to see a sustained period of higher inflation. I just didn't see a path to where that wasn't going to happen with all these um, you know, relief payments or transfers, whatever you want to call them, and the building up of inventories, et cetera. Um, so uh, for me, I do think that we're in for a, a period of sustained inflation. I'm not calling for, you know, five to seven percent to go on ad infinitum. But as as you know, and as listeners probably know, that inflation closer to three can be problematic for, for equity markets in general. Um, but for us, it's not just growth side of our of our sheet as you mentioned earlier like we have our liabilities right so yeah. some people might say like that's that you know the discount rate changes and that could be positive for us but also um you know we care about real returns and we care about uh real dollars so that's like the bigger issue for me and i think what's really surprising to me is that we've been through decades literally of um negative real returns uh, to portfolios. And for some reason, I feel like everyone's kind of ignoring that. I mean, it happened as recently as as the 90s. Um, so for me, like that's that's something that we really have to pay attention to because my job isn't just to hit seven, it's to hit like a meaningful seven. And some public pensions have real return targets. Um, we don't have that, but that's something that we we probably should consider. Yeah, you touched on, on that point about the 90s being, I guess, a lost... Um... Well, well, I guess the 2000s for, for equities uh, in, in real terms and probably, the, I guess, uh, the 70s, say, in, in, in for fixed income investors. Um, I mean, how much of, of kind of a macro call do you make on that? I mean, if you, if you had obviously complete foresight that it was going to be a lost decade for, 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 for equities, you know, looking ahead, you, you, you obviously could 
fundamentally um, reorientate your asset allocation, but you don't have that. So, I mean, how do you balance the portfolio with, with, with one eye on a, on a kind of a macro view for for, for the next ten years, um, or or do you or do you take that kind of a macro perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to think about what the biggest risks are your portfolio, and then you can decide whether you care or not, right? Um, so, if we look back at, at kind of that period, I think the equity markets returned around a six percent, but you also had inflation around six percent. So, um, when people just go back and look at the data, that you're not really seeing the problem there. But for us, um, just like anyone, you, you got to think about the biggest risk to your portfolio. So why why is another reason I care about what the inflation print is? Because um, a lot of public funds run their asset allocation off of mean variance optimization. And a big input into those asset prices or forward-looking projections is inflation, right? Right. So it makes a really meaningful difference about where you want to put your dollars to. And I think... Um, you know, asset allocation is a huge driver of returns. So you've really, you've really got to care. And I could be, I, I totally admit, I could be wrong about this inflation call. And I, But I don't think that just because you could be wrong, you can't start building protection into your portfolio. There are a lot of risks out there that people predict about protect liquidity, for example. So um, like five or six years ago, maybe you were um, worried about liquidity in the markets. We've you couldn't possibly have anticipated COVID, but it didn't. It doesn't mean that you weren't right to kind of start thinking about ways to navigate around that. And I feel, I feel the same about um, about inflationary risks. Also, kind of luckily, maybe lucky is the wrong word, but some of the things that um, would help an inflationary environment post COVID are actually some of the strategies we're most bullish on. So, like our real assets portfolio. Okay, so it's a little bit underweight. Um fixed income relative to to some other plans that are a bit more tilted towards real assets. And that's partially reflecting that, that your major concern, uh, as you say, being inflation. Is is that fair to say? Well, we were really underweight when I got here three years ago, real assets, okay. very underweight, I think, compared to most plans. So um, I think we're coming up normalization. But I would say we've been taking down our fixed income portfolio. And I don't think we're alone in that. I think, you know, your traditional fixed income is definitely looking more credity. Yeah. Um, and then there's a bunch of alternatives to a fixed income now. And I, I really hate that phrase because almost every conference you go to is there's like some panel on fixed income alternatives. Right. But it's a but it's a good question. Yeah. Um, you know, there are things out there that that pay a very low return uh, a low return for minimal amounts of risk that may do better uh, than negative real returns in the fixed income market. Okay. It's interesting. I was looking at your portfolio asset allocation. It's on it's publicly available on, on the website. And it, it's Split into three broad categories, so it's um, broad growth strategies, I think, uh, diversifying strategies, and and others. So, I mean, at a high level, is that how you, you know, categorize all of the different broad asset classes? Yeah. So we can ignore the the other or the opportunities class. That was kind of a holdover of a uh, of some single direct assets that we own that didn't uh, necessarily have a great place fit in the portfolio. Uh, we've since really gotten rid of that. There's no target for that asset class. But yes, we we basically see the portfolio in two parts, um, growth and other. Um, and so other is kind of that diversifying. And you can kind of think of it anything that's, you know, got key risk drivers that aren't supposed to be dominated by growth aspects. Although, you know, we all know that in certain environments that that those correlations kind of break down. And I have to admit, when I first got here, um, they had more. They had more buckets, and it was challenging for me because they have 
have a different way of bucketing things. But one of the things I really like about how Hawaii does it now is we never run into the problem of a really interesting investment coming to us. And we don't say, sounds great, but but our you know XYZ guy doesn't want to do it or it doesn't fit in this bucket. We don't have a bucket problem. Um, and I think, you know, I, you know this about me. I'm not really a big fan of asset class cat- categorizations. I think all asset classes are kind of converging to one anyway. Um, and so for us, having that flexibility to say, okay, we just want to know when you know things go south, whether it made sense or whether it didn't, and that's how we're bucketing it, really gives us a ton of flexibility. Interesting. That's quite an interesting perspective. Asset classes are converging to one. So is that in the sense that it's, it's a risk, a risk asset, or it's not, and 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 it's just you just have different shades of of risk. Is is that is that it? Yeah, I think exactly. So interestingly enough, the kind of the origins behind this, and I wasn't even. I wasn't even here when this happens. This was 08. But um, the board of trustees was looking at what was happening in the market. Well, take it back to 07, let's say. So 07 to 09, the board of trustees was looking at what was happening in their portfolio. And they had traditional buckets like U.S. equity, um, U.S. fixed income, et cetera, et cetera. And based on on what the investment staff had been and the consultants had been educating them over the last number of years, they were it, it didn't make sense why everything was moving in one direction at given times, right? And so they said, okay, uh, it makes more sense to us if we just know what the risk drivers are behind these different things so that, you know, if if correlations go to one and everything draws down, it kind of makes sense to us. So that was the origin about how it kind of came about. They just want to know what to expect. And I actually think, you know, I, like I said, it was really hard for me to get used to that at the beginning, but now I think it kind of makes sense. And, and maybe my philosophy will change on the road. But I do really think these asset class definitions don't make a lot of sense. So I was at a conference last week and they had a topic called is private credit an asset class and kind of like who cares, right? Mm. Well, how does that change how you allocate if it is or isn't an asset class? Um, it's an interesting like philosophical yeah. debate, but yeah. does it matter? And would private credit then be in growth or yeah, growth or diversifying in, from your perspective? I think it depends on what type of private credit it is. Mm. Um, so we... We have, and this goes back to my like asset class definition. We have some obviously in our growth bucket, uh, and then there there is some in diversifying for sure. But what what is the driver behind those different segments of the market? And and also you know there are like some return bogies in there, some cost of capital come into play. But but that's kind of exactly to my point. Like why do you why do we care kind of about bucketing, right? Um, if it has a place in the portfolio and it can compete against other assets, um, then it should be in there. So we actually had a discussion yesterday about a private, equ- uh, not a private equity investment, an investment in our public portfolio of a private. And I think like the whole point was like, we want, do we want this? Um, and if we want it, does it beat what we have in our private equity portfolio? And if it doesn't, then kind of why are we doing this? Because we're not trying to make money in each of our buckets. We're trying to maximize the portfolio return. And we don't want to be taking one duplicative bets. And we don't want to be taking offsetting bets. I don't mean offsetting volatilities. I just mean like offsetting bets. Um, and I think that that's something that has kind of gotten lost in like the, I'll say cuteness of these like mean variance optimizations and um, trying to figure out like who's covering what asset class. And, and, and part of that, to be honest, is because it makes staffing hard. Um, but I think like family offices would say it doesn't make staffing hard. I think it's just on our side, these big institutions, how do you organize like, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollar portfolio if you kind of tell everyone it's one book? It's hard. 
I get that. Yeah. So I, I'm picking up this uh, skepticism of mean variance optimization. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is, um, it, it sounds like there's a few different dimensions to this. What, what, what is the, the big gripe with mean variance optimization? I mean, I, I, you know, obviously I wish I had come up with it because it's a great paper and it sounds really smart. And, um, and in some respects, what, what could, what could you do better? Right. But as a former econometrician, like you, assumptions upon assumptions, time upon assumptions just leads to really bad assumptions. And that's basically what you're doing. And you're kind of lying about the volatilities and you're also, you're also kind of lying about the look back on those volatilities. Right. Um, so even if you take, let's say you sit here and you take a 20 back look back on those vols, I, I don't even think like 20 years is is a very relevant form of data. And the structure of the markets is so different than it was, you know, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, um, that there's just so much baked in. And everybody adjusts their private equity uh, numbers because, as you know, if you actually like reflected um what was happening in the, in the private equity volatilities, you come out with a very different income, a very mm. different outcome, right? And yeah. you can't, or most people won't have 100% invested in private equity. So to me, I, I, I prefer more of a common sense approach, but, but people are uncomfortable with the common sense approach, right? They want yeah. some guardrails around it. Um, so it just, it, it really drives me bonkers because you also can just feed so many things into there. So you might have 0.5% allocated to this one asset. Well, that's why, hmm. <laughs> why would you do that? So is it that you can just get solutions with a mean variance optimization that you wouldn't really just buy into from a common sense perspective? I think ultimately it is confirmation bias at its worst. Okay. You're that's exactly that's what it is yeah you can you can you can use the tool to to get the result you want basically exactly yeah it's interesting um i mean you touched on the you know that this debate about looking back into past data you know is are the markets different to what they were 80 years ago you know do you use that kind of tool historical perspective as as an input into your decision making so Yes and no. Um, you know, I went to Chicago and I think we always have a preference for things that are rooted in economic history and economic fundamentals to a fault, even when they kind of don't make <laughs> sense currently, potentially. That said, there are no two periods in history that are exactly alike. And you can always add a qualifier to them. And I can't think of any time in history that's exactly like this. Um, but what you can do, and I think can be meaningful, is you can look at how um, how correlations or how assets tend to move in tandem during certain periods. And I think that that may be an easier context. The one kind of wrinkle lately is like the Fed is very different than it was decades ago, right? So yeah. um, that's kind of that's kind of putting a monkey wrench into the whole thing. And it's, I mean, you, you think it's different in terms of the this perception of the Fed boss and gradualist approach that they've had and the bias, you know, it's kind of the asymmetric reaction function, the bias to ease. Is, is that is that what you mean? It's different to... Yeah, in, in I mean, I think their mandate changed, right? Right, um, yeah, no, that's true, yeah. They, uh, so, so I think that that's a large part of it. Yeah. Um, they're trying to solve for, for two things now. Um, so I think that it's just a very different context. And you know, look, um, a lot of... Like, I'm not old, but most of Wall Street <laughs> is younger than me now, right? On the on the desks. And so yeah. I think that, 
that it's just a very different environment where we we haven't seen things that that we saw in the past and um and so we have to take to account the actors and like the two largest actors are probably those like who are trading these markets and then the fed right and yes. and they're both in very different places now and i mean it's, it's definitely a valid perspective and interesting but taking that is that just a message of caution and that the world might be a lot less favorable in the next, next decade or is there anything else you can take from that perspective that you might act on i think caution and skepticism um and 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 do things make sense um i think is is it kind of goes back to what i was saying about equities you could say that they're too expensive and you should pull back and then you might also say well but they are you know positive about 80% of the time and you should move forward so i think it's just not relying um it's all, it's like your quant models at a CTA, right? You don't want to rely too much on the historicals because there's so many additional variables in there. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I guess what it sounds like is that, you know, you've emphasized kind of this common sense approach and it sounds like more robust, robustness over optimization. Um, is, is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. Just moving on from the kind of the whole area of, of asset allocation to obviously you have to, you know, populate your different strategies with um, with, with with particular funds or, or managed accounts, etc. So the whole area of of manager selection and, and obviously prior to taking on the CIO role with Hawaii, you oversaw the um, hedge fund portfolio at, at Maryland. So you've got a a lot of experience in in the whole area of manager selection, particularly in, in with respect to quant strategy. So, when you think about that challenge, do you think manager selection is a different skill to asset allocation? Is it is it more or less difficult? So, I think manager selection is is much more difficult. It's hard to quantify. Well, I I get that you can run an attribution, but it's 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 very hard to quantify for multiple reasons. One, there's no two managers that are exactly the same, which is always funny to me when people say, oh, we evaluated these three and we ranked them and this one came out on top. I just find that impossible. How do you how do you compare the three? There's too much going on in there. But I think it's, it's really tough. I think there's a human element and that's really, really hard to kind of put a value on, right? Um, asset allocation, like... I, I, you can take more of a common sense approach, but like manager selection, there's a there's a ton. You you have to know how to evaluate a business. You have to know how to evaluate a team. So maybe private equity funds are are really good at this, um, but they've spent decades kind of honing their craft. So one thing that I've always kind of re- relied on personally is like the history that I've had with these managers. And so there's very few spinouts that happen these days, for example, where I didn't know the team they come came from or people who worked with them. So kind of like triangulating who they are um, and how their business is, even on the like, it's not just the PMs, right? It's who's their COO, who's running the operations, who's their ODD person. At this point, like these names are are usually, um, you know, in our circle. And so I find it easier to know exactly what I'm going to get out of someone that I've known for 20 years or have heard of for 20 years. Um, then someone whose returns might be higher or someone whose um, alpha sourcing might be might have an edge. Um, and obviously we always want to prioritize alpha, but um, there's so many other things that can get in the way, especially I find this hardest in the macro universe. Okay. Um, so 
if you have a single, so for example, if you have a single risk taker on the discretionary macro side, um, let's say he gets like a really, really big call in 2007, but then nothing happens in the macro markets for a really long time. Like what happens to that person's psyche? Mm. Um, do they need a win? How does that affect their risk appetite? And then are they, bi- do they have binary outcomes? Are they, are they using digital outcomes here? So like, um, and if they got the call wrong, for example, in the elections, um, you know, a couple of years ago, like, did that mean they just lost out on last lost out on that year's worth of, you know, convexity that all their peers got or whatever. So I think it can be really challenging, especially in the single risk taker model. Okay. And is that then an argument in favor of thematic over discretionary or just, <laughs> uh, well, it seems to be, obviously it is, it is the arguments that people do make for, for, for systematic, but would that mean, do you think, do you have a bias towards systematic then reflecting that perspective? I don't have a bias. I okay. like both in, in different contexts and for different solutions. I think one of the reasons I got into this business is I just love the old macro guys. Um, it was like the wild, wild west of investing. I love the open mandate and, and I love economics. I love macro economics, right? So for me, that's, that's really a strategy I just find fascinating. On the systematic side, I think there's more of something you're solving for. So in our portfolio, a lot of the systematic managers that we have, we're either solving for some sort of um, a wide range, right? Some sort of uh, consistent form of carry in some, in others, we want a short trading horizon that can kind of, you know, change uh, their signals on the on a dime if the markets look like they're whipsawing um and then others we want to have uh, you know hedge fund like returns with a, a much lower cost or we, we just need momentum exposure or something there's so many different things you can use them for um so i think like one thing that we you know back I'm trying to think uh, four or five years ago i think they had a two percent allocation to commodities well i don't want a long only allocation to commodities so you might be able to use systematic managers in that context right yeah and going back to the macro and you know as you say the macro world is fascinating there's always a story there's always the next big trade and you know every so often, every 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 few years it's like oh this is a great environment for macro and you know i i love the macro debate as well um but but it, it doesn't always necessarily play out like that in terms of the opportunity set or the performance. Is 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 is, is there a risk that you kind of get seduced into saying, "Oh, that's so interesting," and there's bound to be opportunities there? But you know, you can get structural changes in markets that can make it more or less uh, difficult for, for 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 macro traders. Or or how do you avoid that kind of okay? I have a natural interest, so I'm going to always have that in in my portfolio. That kind of bias. Yeah, I think every single time we've said it's a really interesting environment for macro, 90% of the macro managers like don't perform, right? Yeah, exactly. So it can be really tricky. I think like the last two years, clearly there were some that had really fantastic, fantastic years. I think in terms of like, should it be a constant part in your portfolio? Uh, it depends on on who you are and what you want to do. But I, w- I would actually argue that other than like pure... Hmm, maybe fundamental strategy, like price targeting strategies. Like there's no strategy out there that it doesn't have some component of macro in it, like almost none. Right. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of different flavors and varieties um, where you can get that into your portfolio. And we've seen the rise of the, of the, you know, pod shops and um, multi-strategy shops. And then you've had multi-risk taker macro shops, which I think you know, they also had with their center books, a challenging, 
experience um, over the last couple of years. So it really depends on what you want to do. The reason I like macro is it can it can literally mean anything. Yeah. Um, and I think I hate like super constrained investing strategies. I'm not saying on the risk side. I'm just saying on the opportunity side. Um, but it can be really hard to find someone who can flex into that. So I find it very rare that someone who's really really good at like I don't know. Let's let's call it like. EM to also be amazing at, at predicting, you know, something in the U.S. commodity markets. I don't know. That's a bad example because those are kind of tied. But um, so it's hard to find one size fits all. Yeah. So then do you pick like four or five? Um, I don't know. Then did you just create a giant pass through model without realizing it? Mm. And what about, <laughs> you know, if you see traders or, or investors evolve like one thing i've noticed is the macro community has got a lot more interested in crypto and digital assets in in the last couple of years you know there's been an, an institutional flow of money into the space that hadn't been there prior to that if you had a macro trader who you know had been trading you know more typical macro markets and now was dabbling in crypto is that just for the volatility is these days, so that's fair enough. Or would that be, you know, a cause for concern? My personal opinion on that is that funds get criticized for trading new markets a little too much. I think that one of the things I love about financial markets is that they are always evolving and that people are always finding new things to do. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. In terms of crypto, I can't think of really many funds that don't have some exposure to crypto in them. I think almost all on the alternative side do. I don't think it's a big deal. Um, and I want to be careful with that because I know that that kind of sounds a little bit crazy. But um, if you think about what they're doing there, and it, I don't know if you mean like the actual coins or if you mean like the rails on the coin side, they're probably only changing a hand, trading a handful of names that we all kind of know. And on the systematic side, they all have stop losses and risk limits and whatnot. So the exposures there are probably you know, not wildly out of control because the volatility is so high there. Yeah. Um, on the on the other side, like the multi-strategy funds, I, I think for the most part, they're more invested in sort of like the infrastructure and the hardware than they, or software or whatever you want to call it, than they are in the actual coins. Um, I Look, I think it's it's actually the education side needs to be on the investor side, not so much on uh, the okay. money manager side. Yeah, and you, you touched on the fact like the different flavors of macro, which is a fair point, and even you know systematic strategies like like trend following. You know, it's it's it's, it's approaching the problem. You know, it's the same problem. You're you're, you're going to have big moves in markets. How do you capture them? One one is with a discretionary view. The other is with a price um, price based model. Is it, do you have a preference? You know, you, you say you don't have a bias for systematic or discretionary, but how would you, you know, how would you um, weigh up? You know, if you're looking at two opportunities, one's a discretionary macro, the other is a systematic uh, trend follower. Um, are, are they comparable, or you know, you don't have buckets, so you don't say, well, I'm putting one in one bucket, the other in the other bucket. Does that are are those kind of um, comparisons or, or, or differentials difficult to make? Yeah, so for us, I think um, there's a liquidity difference typically there, right? So some of the discretionary guys, they they could theoretically be in like level threes, or at least much less liquid than some of the CTAs. So okay. from a liquidity perspective, they might be diff bucketed differently. I think it depends on what we're looking for. Um, I get that I'm not in the best place to maybe make massive macro calls. But if we do think there's something kind of obvious, like, 
COVID, if we think there's some massive dislocation out there in EM and that we don't have any great way to capture it, like then that might be a reason to go look down that path. The one thing I'll say, I'll bring up one anecdote. I was at um, iConnections last week and had one meeting that really stuck with me and kind of broke my heart, to be honest. But they are a macro fund quant macro fund, um, but they have two two versions of it. I won't give away their name because I don't want to butcher it, but one of their funds has a discretionary overlay and one of them doesn't. And the one with the discretionary overlay has underperformed the other one. And it just, I find it so crushing because you, I really want the human element to win, right? Yes. But it, I don't doubt it. And I'm sure that that's really, really common. Um, and I also think that's a really hard thing for probably the PMs in those positions to admit to. But I wanted the I want the human element to win. Well, there is a perspective, isn't there, that the human plus the machine is, is, is better than the machine, even though the machine is better than the human, isn't that it? Or, um, but it, I guess it doesn't always work out that way. But I mean, it's... It, when you're looking at, you know, you've been to iConnections or, or any of those conferences and you meet a whole bunch of managers, how do you go about, you know, screening the universe or, or picking managers? You, you kind of touched on how you can have a comfort for, for managers you've had some kind of exposure to in the past, but presumably you don't want to limit yourself to those. Uh, you know, outside of that kind of past pool of, of, of experience, how do you search for, for new managers? No, I I agree, and and uh, you know I've been not to give away my age too much, but doing I've been in the hedge fund space for what seventeen years now. So I mean more to the point that if you know someone tells me they came from a shop, I probably know some other PM there and could kind of background check on them. But I think the most important thing for me, and this goes across all managers, any strategy, emerging, large, whatever, do they have a source of alpha, and is it persistent and protectable? And, and and if it's not protectable, is it at least protectable for the next five years? Mm. Um, and that's like the number one thing for me. And then and then you can move forward from there. Like, do they have the right team, infrastructure, fees, whatever? But but if there's no clear reason why they should win, then it's not worth a second meeting. And that, that's actually kind of what I love about iConnections. It's not like you can learn everything in 30 minutes. That's yes. you know insane. But I think you can hear if there's the potential for them to outperform because they have some edge. And if they can't tell you that in 30 minutes, there's a problem anyway. Interesting. And I mean, obviously, in some kind of, I guess, macro type scenarios or, or various, you know, as, as somebody might have an information edge or whatever it is, that that quite clear. For something like, you know, systematic trend following, you've got different yeah. sh- shades of trend following. It's a different type of edge, I guess. Or, or uh, can you apply that framework to, to selecting trend following or CTAs? Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, I think it is hard, right? You got to trust that they kind of have built a better mousetrap mm. um, to some extent. But I think you also have to start from you can narrow down the universe before you even get there. So if you say I'm looking for something a systematic macro manager, what are you looking for? What is the time horizon you're looking for? What markets are you looking for them to trade? Like, um, there's so many variables that you can narrow down exactly what you want. So I think you need to look at your portfolio first and say what's the whole, not just oh, I don't have systematic, I should go get this. But every, I think at this point, look, like almost all public pension funds are pretty mature at this point. There's, um, right, like we haven't added a state and a new pension in a while. Um, so I think people should stop saying, I'm trying to like fill this bucket or create this class. They should say, I've got holes in my portfolio. What am I missing? Like what exposures don't I have? Um, and and then you can go out and hunt for those. And, and then you can compare like, built the models, how did it perform? 
Is this all back tested? What markets are they in? What's the liquidity of those markets? Are they adding new strategies? What um, What's on their research deck? Like what are the three things they're working on right now? Um, where'd their team come from? I mean, there are ways to narrow it down. It is, I think for me though, uh, you hit the nail on the head, like systematic strategies are the hardest for me to underwrite. Okay. And it, I mean, it, it, you can have a checklist like as you say of you know how many PhDs or what's the investment process but equally you know you can have managers with small teams who have a very disciplined process and they've you know kept true to that process for for, for, for decades and they've done very well you know totally. in, in many instances as well or better than the larger team so it's a, it is difficult isn't it it's not just having your checklist and, and ticking off all the boxes Totally. No, I totally agree. But it is a place to start. Yeah, it is for sure. What about the scenario when things go, you know, I suppose worse than expectations or you have a manager who's in drawdown or, you know, you're starting to have concerns about performance. What what kind of triggers, um, you know, I suppose you know, are, are, are the reason for a difficult conversation or, or prompt you to say, okay, we need to review this. Is it is it a kind of a a drawdown level or is it the pattern of performance that, that you would worry about or how do you think about underperformance? So we have a number of managers that under, are currently underperforming in our portfolio that we haven't terminated yet. And I would say the reason they don't haven't been terminated is that some, some of them we understand the reason behind the underperformance mm. and we're not surprised um, because they're there to perform a function. So we had one manager that was in a drawdown pre-COVID and then had a meaningful return sort of in the aftermath. And that's what we wanted. We wanted that manager to provide some sort of convexity, right? Um, so that's their function. That's okay. Um, other situations that that did result in a termination is um, one manager telling us this is how we're going to perform. And literally, they were doing like the, the inverse of everything right, that okay. we thought was going to happen. I was like, maybe if you reversed all your signals, this would work out. Um, I think the other thing is, uh, a good, like a a good one is if a manager claims they make money on regime calls and they've clearly called all the wrong regimes. Um, turnover of key persons, um, tinkering with the models too much. Um, and then, you know, what happens more often than not is focusing on, on new things coming into the portfolio and new strategies um, when there's still some th work to be done on the main. But in general, I would say Hawaii, more than anyone I've ever met, is really a long-term investor and wants to see what happens over a cycle and can be very patient. So unless there's major management issues or moral issues or something like that horrific, mm. um, we're happy to sit through it if we are still convicted in the strategy. Okay, so it sounds like you're 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 applying your statistical econometrician mindset of you know unless it's uh, <laughs> unless there is statistical evidence to. Uh, disproved yeah. in the null hypothesis of of uh, is that right or yeah. yes that is how I I think about things um, I think I I've mentioned to you in the past that you know I know how often I'm wrong and it's a very high percentage of the time it's close to fifty percent of the time having yeah. traded the mortgage markets but um, I always I always say look I cannot parse through every single bit of information in the world yeah um, so what are like the key things that I'm going to take into consideration and then I kind of solve for my internal 95% confidence interval and I either accept or reject the doll and then I move on and if I'm mm. wrong I'm wrong but I was confident in that decision and if I'm not if I feel like I don't have enough information I'll go find someone who feels like they do have enough information and see what they think. Mm. 
And, and that kind of thinking, you know, from my, my experience as an allocator, we were typically allocating to quant strategies and it lends itself very well to that statistical analysis because the, the, the portfolio that you're allocating to is, you know, um, you know, a, a trading through multiple markets over, over many samples. So you're going to have statistically periods of underperformance just by chance. The challenge, I guess, coming back to the conversation we were having around the kind of the macro investor and the macro trader who might be having a bad day or a bad week or a bad year, or things going on in their personal life, et cetera, is, you know, it, can you apply just that purely statistical lens to that scenario as well? When you know, say, something is going on or you might have a question in your mind, okay, we thought this person had an edge that seemed very clear and now we're not so sure. Um, how, it, it, again, is, it, does that, is that a more challenging uh, one to determine? No, I think it actually might be easier. Okay. So like key signals around there is um, like if you know their trade construction um, and what, like how do they typically leg into and leg out of positions or how do they try to, um, you know, extract some optionality. If they all of a sudden change the strategy, like if they, if they didn't, used to have only binary type trades in the portfolio and now they do meaning like in that scenario maybe they're trying to make up for like five years of zero percent returns or something right and they're hail marrying it so i think that's one i think the other thing you can kind of watch for is if they're breaking down their contacts that's changed a lot right so like 15 years ago you talked to a macro manager on this on the discretionary side and it was all about like i have these key contacts well the world got a lot smaller <laughs> Um, you don't have to like fly to Riyadh or something to talk to someone you can zoom with them. Right. And a lot of people have that. There are literally businesses built on connecting people that, you know, uh, were kind of around 15 years ago, but now everyone has those right on staff. Um, so you can, you can look at how they're doing it that way. You can look at, um, one thing that I've noticed is that they'll get kind of flexible in their risk limits. Um, and they might amend those. They might say, okay, well, we used to like, if we were drawn down six, we went to zero. Now, if we're down six, we go to half. That can be good and bad, but why are they doing that? And and how did that pay off? So look at those payoff profiles of when they change those risk limits. Um, or when they, you know, my favorite is when we want to stay solid and we're not, we're not adding these new strategies. And all of a sudden, they're huge and adding all these new strategies. Right. Yeah, interesting. Um, so it's very much about looking at the process, I guess, as opposed to the outcome is is, is the philosophy. Yeah, because like everyone kind of structures their trades a little different, mm. um, and I, I, it, it depends on what you want and what you're looking for, and, and if that fits with you. Um, but if they start trading, what they changing what they say their process was, then that's that's a problem. Yeah. And I know you have strong views or you have views on the role of consultants in the whole manager selection process. Um, talk to us about that. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can be a little tough on the consultants for sure. I um, The asset class consultants, I think, can be very helpful. So um, I, I am not an operational due diligence expert. And I think that there are a number of firms out there that are really, really strong on that side. Um, and I find them extremely helpful, and I think it's a great form of portfolio insurance. On the investment due diligence side, I think it can be tricky. Um, 
I think it can be tricky for one outfit to say, we're going to underwrite things that are perfect for your portfolio, right? Um, and even if they have a couple of different options for, for what you may be looking for, it's very different than a teen that spends all day, every day looking for exactly what they want. And I mean, by that, I mean us, right? Um, so I think one of the reasons people get into my into this business, into public funds and, and, and into being an allocator is because you love it and you love doing the diligence and you love talking to people and, and digging into the materials. And look, it can be, um, it can definitely be an ego thing if someone else comes in and says, well, I don't agree with, with your diligence and, um, and for that reason, I'm not going to let you do it. Um, and so I think that can be kind of hard. And my best experiences with consultants is when we work together and we share ideas. And if I'm looking at something and I need an extension of staff and they can kind of help fill in that hole and give me another perspective, that's great. But I don't like the menu type relationship. Like here's, a, you know, 50 funds we have, you can pick from this list. Because how does that differentiate you from any of the, your peers? Um, you're just going to get a, a market return, essentially like a beta. You're going to get what everybody else has, right? Okay. Um, so that's that's one of kind of my bones to pick. But I but they are some are good. Some I have more challenges with for sure. So is it is it that not enough in not enough cases like niche managers are being unearthed and you're just getting the kind of pretty much top of the class type um, manager that that you, you you could you could pay anybody to go and and find the the largest or or, or the most obvious names in, in a given asset class is, is that what you tend to get is that the challenge I think that's sometimes a challenge I, and sometimes that's may that may not be bad if you're in an asset class where the dispersion of returns are really really tight around the managers then fine Yeah but if you're if that's not the case then I, look it's very hard to scale that. If you have 50 clients and they all want something different and you've got to look at 50 funds for a client, that's really hard. That's a hard business to be in. Um, so I get that. Um, but I, I, I just wish there was a better way where we could all kind of admit we're not the smartest people in the room. Let's work together and then not say you can and can't do things um, and kind of get to the best outcomes for everybody. Good stuff. So it's just going back to your background. Um, you know, you touched on the various different roles you've had, you know, particularly being, being a trader, you know, you've had a kind of a more research uh, role. Um, you've obviously been an allocator, you know, so you've had that kind of variety in your background. Is that important? Do you think that, that presumably that has set you up well to, to step into the role of CIO? But would you say that's the ideal path for somebody to get a lot of different exposures? Or, or what do you think is the kind of experience that one needs to step into a role like you have at the moment? Um, the ideal path is a hard question. When I think about some of the best CIOs in the business, I think a lot of them did have direct market experience, but they're also all really good leaders. They're really good bosses. I think um, while I appreciate that I've had exposure to equities and fixed income and commodities and CTAs, uh, and I think that makes me know a little about a lot of different categories, which makes me an effective literal asset allocator, right? Like asset classes. Um, it's, I, I think becoming like a good boss, a good mentor, a good leader, a good, um, you know, organizer of human ideas is really hard to learn. And I wouldn't say any of those experiences set me up perfectly for that. I actually, um, 
I talked to him this morning, but for the last, for like five years, I had a management coach who taught me how to be a good boss. I met with him every Monday for an hour to learn how to be a better manager of people because, um, you know, I'm other than one person on my team, I'm significantly younger than most of my team here and they have a lot of experience. Um, and so the challenge for me wasn't so much knowing a ton about each market. It was how to get the most out of these people with decades more of experience than me and really empower them to go out there and, and do the best in their asset classes. And for me to kind of clear all the other stuff out of their way so they could do that, which I think is very different than what people think a CIO is. Like you're really a blocker and tackler so that your stars can, you know, go out there and and do all the dirty work. Yeah. That's definitely a, a different picture than I think most people would have of the CIO who's kind of making the big calls and, you know, having research analysts feeding their views up, but ultimately you're calling all the shots. So it's the way you paint it is very much more, as you say, more of a manager and and mentor and and blocker, as you say. I mean, what have you learned in that period of you know working with a coach on management and leadership? Yeah, you know, anything you're doing now that you weren't doing five years ago. So I think. Um the most like obvious parallel for me is that if you think it's someone on like a trade desk, like the star trader at at whatever name your favorite bank, they're like, oh, he's he's really good, or the star salesperson, oh, they're really good. Let's say the salesperson, they're excellent. Let's have them run the sales desk. Well, they were really good at their job. Were they really good at running the sales desk? I don't know, maybe, but those two things aren't immediately obvious. And so I think that I had to learn um, that you know it's not all about me. It's pretty much not about me at all. It's about everybody else. Um, the other thing I had to learn how to do, and that was actually before I got here, was stop redoing everyone's work because I'm not necessarily right. Um, when I got here, that was actually easier. So there's a guy on my team who's been in equity markets for 30 years longer than me. He understands them way better than me. So it was actually much easier for me to not come in and kind of put my own spin because I'm fully aware that he's got this edge I just don't have. Um, but I think... The other part of that is I kind of had to learn how how I do have views that come through, right? And there are some things that I that I want the team to follow on. Um, but I think the the way that the coach kind of helped me was how do you phrase what you're saying in a way that people like want to collaborate with you and don't feel like you're jamming stuff down your throat at the same time. Um, how do you get involved in their projects without seeming like you're micromanaging them? Because if I don't have some sort of hands in what when what's going on, I just won't, I, I'll be out of touch with the markets and then I'm completely ineffective, right? Yeah. I guess ultimately as CIO, you, the, the, what you do have control over is is the, is the investment process. Now, obviously you have a board and that, that, that dictates certain things, but ultimately that, that's your, your sphere of influence. Uh, um, I mean... Yeah, good point. And do you so do you you know you could you could go with different approaches there. It could be consensus, or it could be you get the call, or you know. So what, <laughs> what do you think is a good way to run an investment process that that harnesses yeah. the skills of everybody, but ultimately you know you, you have the final say, I guess, or you you make the final recommendation to the board. Yeah, I think it it matters on what type of organization if it's big or small. So I don't think like. Chris Ailman probably couldn't run a completely consensus organization. He has too many people on staff, right? But he can probably do it with his senior folks. I have a really, really small staff. Um, everyone votes on every single investment that goes into the portfolio, uh, including me. My vote is not the only one that matters, but if I, I think if I voted it down, probably wouldn't get in. Right. Um, it hasn't really happened yet. The closest I've come is to saying I have major reservations. You need to 
spend another six months on this. Um, and they haven't come back to me yet, but I run a very, very consensus oriented team. Um, so one example is like, we're considering something in China right now. And there's, um, there's a lot of feelings both on the board and internally about what that means and what we want to do there. And I want everyone to be involved in that discussion, like literally everybody on the team. Um, in terms of my of my board, we did change the investment process. We have a lot of authority now on the investment side. Um, so we used to have to take all investments to the board. We don't do that anymore unless it's an over a certain amount of the portfolio. Okay. Um, that's been really great because it, it bites us and it makes us feel like we have ownership. It also puts the burden on, or not a burden, responsibility on us to educate the board. And actually, I would say we are over conservative about telling them what's going on in the portfolio just because they're not seeing every single one that comes through anymore. So we're very communicative. Um, about about how things come into the portfolio and if it fits with their view, because the board I think has a tougher mandate than I do. They have to decide what's best for the retirees. I just have to work within the risk limits and try to hit my bogey. Right, and I mean you talked about that relationship with the board and, and education. Is that you know presumably you have people who are non-investment uh, experts and you're trying to dumb things down somewhat or simplify things? Is, is there, does that create risk that, you know, communication risks or, or do you think that process works works reasonably well? Yeah, it's tricky. It's almost, um, I, you know, I, I think, but yes, it, it create risk, I think on their side, to some extent, it's, it's almost as if I asked a manager for position level transparency, right? Mm. If I'm getting that, then I, I better stay on top of what they're doing because I now have, I now know what they've got. And if I miss something and don't act, that responsibility is on me. Whereas if I just go into some sort of commingled account, say, well, theoretically you could say, well, I didn't know they were doing that. Um, even though maybe you should, I said, so I think like the more transparency we give the board, the more responsibility is on them for sure. Um, but that's up to them, their level of comfort with what we're doing. Um, I do think, um, they're very good at determining common sense and if something makes sense for the portfolio, because to be honest, a lot of investment strategies are not all that complicated. You can really distill them down into a couple bullet points that I think we can all explain in lay terms. Okay. I mean, it's interesting as you talk about the role, you know, it's a, obviously investment underpins everything you do, but at the same time, you've got kind of a communication um, element to the role and there's an, a management element role. Um, and then there's like an education element, uh, you know, people management, all of those elements. And, and then the actual hard investing is a component too. Is that, do you think that's a great fit for, for your skills, et cetera, that it's not just investment or, you know, would, are there times you'd say, oh, I'd love just run an unconstrained portfolio and, and not have to worry about any of the other stuff? Yeah, well, I mean... I guess if I want to run an unconstrained portfolio, I could do that in my PA. Right, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, part of me wishes that I could, right? But at the same time, I know who I am. I'm not the world's greatest investor. I do think I'm a good boss. I do think my people, we have a ton of fun. And I think I have found that it wasn't, if you'd asked me five years ago, what I want to be like a coordinator of people was not it. But I do think 
because my team is so strong here and I'm learning a ton for them, this is, this is a really good fit, right? Like they are teaching me stuff. And one of the biggest challenges about being a CIO in your thirties is that everybody thinks you have learned everything and you haven't, Mm. you have so much more to be learning. And I'm in a really lucky spot that um, as long as I let them do their day jobs, they can still teach me what they know. Um, So there's like, for example, my deputy CIO here is maybe the most best person I've ever seen in my life at cash efficiency in a portfolio context. And um, and also like very good about how to set up accounts and that kind of thing um, and how to structure transactions. And um, if I take the stuff out his plate so that he can teach me that kind of stuff, um, then I'm very, very lucky because I don't, I just don't know that that, that would happen in another context. Great. Well, we're getting towards the, the end of the conversation. I, I guess it's as we typically wrap up these conversations, we like to get a, a perspective from people about advice they would offer to other people who want to, you know, develop a career into a CIO or that type of role or to get more proficient in managing a a multi-asset portfolio or running asset allocation plans. You know, what what has been helpful to you or what advice to, would you give somebody who was, you know, progressing through their career and they wanted to, to develop their skills or things to read, things to do? Any thoughts on that? Well, it depends on what they're good and bad at. I really liked having a management coach. Um, I would try to get involved in in the investment committee meetings, not to sit, just to listen. So you know, you may not work on real estate, but it might be helpful for you down the road to know what goes into the real estate portfolio. But my number one piece of advice that I say every time someone asks, well-meaning people tell you you need or should do something before your next step, just ignore it. <laughs> just okay. go ahead. Fake it till you make it. Just go for it. Uh, yeah. go, go, <laughs> go for just it now. Go yeah. There's no step yep. in between. Yep, exactly. Well, I mean, and the worst thing that happens is you don't get it. Absolutely. Right? Well, Grace, um, we're literally just up to the hour. So I think that's a good natural point to to sign off. It's been Fascinating to get your perspective on all of those uh, points. Thank you very much for for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So with that, I'll pass it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Alan and Elizabeth, for a very enjoyable conversation. I loved Elizabeth's view on the challenges that CIOs are facing in a world with higher inflation and what it means to have a 7% return target hanging over you. And of course, it was so refreshing to hear a large allocator basically not caring if a particular strategy is a quote-unquote asset class. And finally, great to hear someone asking real questions about all the assumptions that goes into the classic mean variance optimization model. Make sure you go and follow Elizabeth and Alan's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to building a well-diversified portfolio and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continue. From Alan and me, thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.